Hi everyone, it's Emily from the Modern Romantic Podcast. This next episode you're about to listen to is about Shakespeare, featuring Lisa Ann Goldsmith and Owen Thompson. We had a rollicking great time recording this one, and we laugh pretty much solidly throughout the whole thing. However, because it's about Shakespeare, it's a little bit naughty, and it has a little bit of language. So if you're sensitive to those things, I suggest maybe you just skip this one. Otherwise, feel free to join us. We'd love to have you. Either way, we still love you, we're still your friends, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Modern Romantic Podcast, where we celebrate romanticism through art, storytelling, nature, music, poetry, creating, and diving headlong into conversations with wildly interesting people doing wildly interesting things. Hashtag nacho of my life. Uh, to understand that reference, go back and listen to the episode with James Navy. It is amazing. Hello, I am plus eight to Bardic Inspiration, and I am joined today by my co-host, I am Pentemily. Uh, <laughs> Let me make sure that I get that enunciation uh, <laughs> out there. Iambic Pentemily. Thank you. That is correct. <laughs> You may go, peasant. God be good, Den. If you're listening to this live right now, I do want to invite you to join us uh, to join us later to listen to all of our previously recorded episodes. The audio from all our live stream interviews is available on all the best podcast outlets. Just look for us under Modern Romantic or visit our website at themodrom.com and click on podcast up at the top. I also... And I'm going to do this in my best British accent. <clears throat> I personally want to invite you to join us live. You can join us Monday nights to catch these podcast interviews live and interact with our guests every Monday night at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Central Time, and 8 p.m. Eastern Time in the United States. Visit twitch.tv forward slash the modern romantic for our live streams. Follow to get our notifications when we go live and follow our social media channels for announcements on who we are having on. Um, Emily, briefly talking about our day, I know I'm switching, uh, switching land masses here. Um, <laughs> that was the fastest that jump was, over the pond. That was excellent work, sir. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, Emily, can you talk to me about your week? Um, what, uh, what have you encountered the last week? It's really hard to believe that it's only been a week. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's, <laughs> I'm completely unprepared for this question. <laughs> um, I spent my week planting more seeds mostly. Um, I have all the lettuce and greens and microgreens planted there. <laughs> um, I did my final interview for, uh, for my job. Um, oh, congrats. Thank you. Um, so I will hopefully find out a, um, a, some sort of notice whenever HR decides to get back to me um, that I had my final it was fantastic. Uh, stumbled a couple of places, much like my speech impediment tonight. Uh, but that being said, um, I think it went over well, and that's really the biggest thing that I did. Oh, um, thank you, Cap. Um, Cap said, "Good luck." Thank you. Um, yes, good luck to you. I thought of one more thing. Yes. I, I got this book and I'm about to read it. I haven't started it yet, but I heard good things. It's mm -hmm. called Winter Set Hollow. Ooh. And it's by Jonathan Edward Durham. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you could see. I'm holding up the cover. Oh, it's that's a rabbit a cool cover. Yeah. Very kind of just white in the back. Anyway, so yeah, I'll let you know how that goes. Yeah, stay tuned. Yeah. Um, with that being said, I I'm very interested. Speaking of like literary works, um, Emily, I am super happy and super excited to have some guests on here today who are going to talk to us about uh, something that we're also very passionate about. Um, would you like to help me introduce our lovely, lovely Bardic-inspired guests tonight? You know I would. Um, we've got Lisa Ann Goldsmith and Owen Thompson joining us today. With prolific careers and resumes on and off the stage, these two have stormed their fair share of castles. Lisa is a prominent dialect coach, performer, singer, actor, educator, theater professional. Um, she's performed with some names you might recognize. Uh, Russell Crowe, uh, Kristen Bell, and Jake Gyllenhaal, to name a few. And Owen is a theater professional as well. He's a, an award-winning director, educator, recovering actor, snarky bitch, and a drug-addled <laughs> whore, and Thank a prime, prime AARP candidate. <laughs> so without further ado. I love that you put that in. <laughs> I'm not sure which one I like better. <laughs> without further ado, lords and ladies, lads and lasses, peasants and pilgrims, distant cousins and theater ghosts, and Her Royal Highness the Queen, I present Lisa and Owen. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. No, thank, thank you, you for coming. Thank you so much. Um, if you haven't, if you've listened this far and you, uh, we do want to say that this podcast is probably going to get a little bit naughty, um, just as a forewarning. Um, so please yes. understand that moving forward. We, <laughs> yeah, we, we can't... should just apologize now. We're New Yorkers. You know, four-letter words, cursing is like mother's milk to us. Yeah, we, we, we grew up in the 70s in New York City, and, you know... It, we get it's, passionate, you know. Yeah, you know, what can we say? We're sorry. <laughs> we're just sorry, gonna not sorry, everybody. but, yeah. We're just going to let everybody do their thing, and that's when the best moments come, so... Hooray. Kaz <laughs> uh, is a friend of ours who has joined many of our streams, and... They said, this is definitely going to be an amazing stream. And yes, it is. It has I been guess. so far. <laughs> uh, before we got in, I mean, these two alone had us both rolling in laughter. And we do want to make a, a quick FYI. Uh, we were writing the intro to this. And when we prompted um, Lisa and Owen for how we wanted to introduce, uh, you know, we kind of... Blah, blah, blah. And then Owen just started spouting off uh, what you heard for his introduction. So that was not our doing. I just want to throw that PSA out there. But <laughs> that is fair. Listen, that is... I have to know. I have to take credit for snarky bitch. I just <laughs> that is that true. <laughs> and you know, I'm going to have to put that possibly on my website. So you know, because oh, it's you yeah. Add that to your bio. Yeah. Um, one thing I do have to ask, um, Owen and Lisa, how did you two meet? Ah, well. <laughs> That's a good oh, question. My protege. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, we, you know, the funny thing is, uh, as Lisa Ann would put it, we've known each other since before there were flush toilets. But the truth is, we probably should have known each other before there were wheels. We o- we only met in 1996 
And but our but we soon discovered after becoming friends that our paths narrowly missed each other on several occasions for about at least 10 years before that. Um, but yeah, we both worked at, oh my God, the, the theme restaurant in the 1990s called the Jekyll and Hyde Club in New York City. Uh, oh. If you know, do you guys know that restaurant? I see you're, you're reacting. I've uh, heard of it, but I, yeah. Yeah, it was, I think like the Adventurers Club in, in, at Disney, only like the ripoff of that. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I was hired to, to work there. And uh, my, the first day that I got there, I was fortunate enough to trail Lisa Ann. And I soon realized that she was just the kind of dark, evil genius <laughs> that I wanted to hitch my wagon to. And ever after that, we became fast friends basically for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Is that fair? That's absolutely fair. <laughs> so you know, we 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 played, in in, in that was a re I mean, for God's sake, for our sins, it was a theme restaurant where um, the <laughs> actors were hired to play mad scientists and adventurers and bizarre characters that would wander around this club that was filled with animatronic puppets and that kind of thing. And our job was basically to, to fuck with people, pardon my French, uh, on a regular basis, <sighs> He's either, <first. laughs> either live or over microphones and through puppets and cameras and that kind of thing. And, and that's what we did for a, for a long, long time. And then we started doing theater together because, you know, that seemed like it would be more fun. It seemed like the natural transition. Yes. Just like for Trey and myself, you know, we were both working in a, a retail men's store and um, and we decided that a podcast was the logical next step. Of course. <laughs> oh, my God. So I have to, if I might, I have to respond to Kaz because Kaz put that cackle as music to my heart. One, are you talking about me? And if you are... I must tell you that last summer, ah uh, yes, I played the Wicked Witch of the West and in the Wizard of Oz at Heinz Field. Um, so this is my this is my actual witch cackle. This is for you, Kaz. <laughs> wow. And and I believe that isn't wow. that your, isn't that yeah. your ringtone now? It is my ringtone. <laughs> oh, that's great! So like people can call you when you're like in the grocery store, and now there's this. <laughs> this makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. So, with with that being said, I do have to ask because um, now that you have that as the ringtone. Um, Owen, is there anything that you have either kept or memories that you keep from previous shows that you've either directed or been oh, in? Oh my God! So I mean, <sighs> so, all over his apartment. There's so there's so much, and the truth. I mean, honestly, and this is embarrassing. When when the, the well, not embarrassing really. I guess everybody does it, but um, if if you've been in 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 theater a long time, you keep programs, you keep pictures, you keep all sorts of things. I will say. Um, the you know the, the 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 age that we live in is helpful in that um, clutter is somewhat avoided because you can scan. 
photographs and that kind of thing and store them digitally. But I have all, I mean, there's so much memorabilia over, you know, the years that we've been doing this. You know what? Fuck it. Like 40 plus years. I mean, Jesus Christ, we've been doing this a long time. So yeah, there's, I have a, a ton of pictures and photographs and, you know, clippings and all of that kind of thing. And I'm Lisa Ann, I know you do too. Oh my God. We have a bunch of stuff of us together. Yeah, we do. We do. But you, I remember hearing on your podcast that you haven't necessarily done a lot of Shakespeare together. Well, we we've done we we've done so much Shakespeare like separately, yeah. um, and we now do this podcast. We've actually only done two Shakespeare plays together. Um, I directed a production of uh, Romeo and Juliet many years ago that Lisa Ann was instrumental in making really good. She played, not only did she play Lady Capulet, but she also did the dance choreography of, of that particular production, which was crucial. And, but the one time that we, and, and we did act together in that show because- We did, because you played Tybalt. I did, even though that's, I hate, I actually hate acting and directing at the same time. But the truth is we were producing that show and we needed to save a salary. So, I mean, this is the, the way it goes sometimes. So in order to save a salary, I played Tybalt and didn't pay myself so that we could afford to actually mm. do that show. The only other show that Lisa Ann and I, the only other Shakespeare show, I should say, that we've done together, uh, we did a production of Twelfth Night years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma, of all places, in which Lisa Ann was Viola and I was Malvolio. And that was really fun. That was a blast. And we have so many stories about that summer. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Is that... You... Oh, go ahead, Trey. Sorry. I said, you know I'm going to ask. Please, can you tell us one of them or a couple of them? Oh, man. Well, we don't like to speak ill of the dead. But let's just say... But we will. But we will. <laughs> but we will. Um, <laughs> the gentleman that was the artistic director of the company was also playing Orsino. Um so oh dear! And I had to pretend to be in love with him. Mm -hmm. He was—he was not very good. It was—it was, you know. So, oh god. Well, you don't want to say, but I'll. I mean, this was—I mean—and and we're very grateful to him because he brought us to that theater, and he was a very talented guy in a lot of ways. But he was older, and he—he. He, cast himself in roles that were not necessarily age appropriate like he played Orsino Romeo and Romeo, Romeo. Oh my god he, yeah he had the played year Romeo. before he played Romeo he was like you know 50 something yeah and so he played Orsino in this particular production and Lisa Ann had to play opposite him and he just he was not good and uh it was problematic and um and yet and yet that production ended up being a lot of fun we kind of, well, we had a director who was not not a strong enough hand, I think. And so we had to end up kind of taking it into our own hands. Um, we had a bunch of other friends in the show who were just wonderful. But, you know, it, it was hard to work with somebody who kind of was doing things as a director that the text totally contradicted. So. Yeah. Well, and, you know, this will, I mean, anybody who's listening that's done not only Shakespeare, but theater in general, you, you will know that that is the kind of thing that you deal with all the time, which is one reason yeah. I would say 
that Lisa Ann and I both became directors, really. It's an inspiration to you when you're an actor and you, in, you encounter directors who are, let us say, not as helpful as you would like. Uh, and you, you observe the process and you know what you want as an actor. It, it, it teaches you. Um, in, in fact, I mean, I, I will say that any, any, any merit at all that I have as a director completely comes from my experience as an actor over many years and craving the kind of direction that I at least now try to provide for actors. But I, right. I at least I know what I wanted when I was an actor. And so, uh, and I didn't always get it. So now I, you know, I do my best to, and I, I know Lisanne, you do too. Um, yeah, and also it's also like when you're in a show, not just what you're not getting from the director yourself, but you're watching like there's moments being there's things being missed in the play. Yeah, you know you you and you're like, wait, what about? But that's a laugh line, or that's a moment, or you know. So yeah, for sure. It, it would drive me up the wall um, having moments like that in shows. I I have not had the kind of career that you um, that either of you have had, but. Um, it wasn't until I did a production of uh, Eurydice that I actually got a director that was like, no, we're having a moment. This is this is poetic art. We need to take the time. And I think that was the first director that actually took that time to say, we are taking the time that we need and the audience can suck it up. Yeah, and you earn it, right? Like you earn it. It's You can't take pauses all through a play, you know, because I, I describe them as, you know, sometimes people take pauses that are so big you can drive convoys of trucks through them, right? But they haven't <laughs> earned that pause. You know, like, you know, you have to keep things moving. If you take a pause every other line, I'm going to be like, ugh, you know. Well, of, of course. And, and, you know, pace is a major issue in, in every play. But another issue that, that, and I think this speaks to what you're talking about, is that you need to take the time to let moments land. And, of course, it depends moment to moment in a play and production to production. But at, certainly, you know what? In rehearsal, let every moment land. And then worry about pace when you're actually going to put it in front of an audience. Right. But if if the if every actor isn't hearing and understanding what's going on, uh, and and being fully present not only for what they say but for what they what they hear and experience, then the audience won't get it either. So, I, I mean, it's 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 pretty. It's pretty basic and simple stuff, but it's amazing how often it, it doesn't happen. Um, and, it, and, and yeah, the director is the person that needs to make the space for it to happen. And mm -hmm. that, for, that happens less often than it should. Right. I mean, it's called a pregnant pause for a reason, right? It's a pregnant pause because there's something that's, that's gestating in the silence. Right. Yeah. And so, and that moment gives birth to something important. Speaking of giving birth to something important, <laughs> you have a podcast called um, "A Bard the Bardcast." It's Shakespeare, you dick, and it won yes, an award for best podcast. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you about the award and also how you came to that name. Well, you want to tell, tell about you. the award, Lisa Ann? No, I want to tell them about the name. 
Well, we can do both. Yes, okay. do both. Um, so Owen and I both worked at the New York Renaissance Festival. Oh, yay. Um, right. And um, one, so every year they would do a professional Shakespeare. And if you paid, bought a ticket to come into the fair, you could come to the Shakespeare you know, at the big open air theater. And this one year they were doing As You Like It. And it had started, maybe gone on about 15 or 20 minutes. And in the middle of somebody's speech, two guys in the front row got up and started. Not just two guys, two Two bikers. Bikers Bikers love the Ren Fair. They do. Don't ask me why. Big big tits and chicken legs, turkey legs rather. That's why. Fair. I think that's fair. I think so, too. So anyway, the bikers got up and started walking out. And the first biker turned over his shoulder to the second biker and goes, what the fuck was that? What the hell? What the hell was that? (laughs) And the second biker looks at him and goes, looks at the first biker and says, what the hell was that? It's Shakespeare, you dick. (laughs) And you overheard that. And that became legend. Everybody heard it. The whole audience, every actor on stage. Everybody cracked up. So when we were thinking about doing this podcast, which, by the way, the way it came about was literally in the first flush of the pandemic lockdown in March of 2020, I was sitting around my house pulling my hair out thinking, Jesus, what the hell can I do to keep myself from suicide what can I what what can I do for my own house that is even remotely creative? And I thought, hey, aren't the kids doing these? Aren't the kids doing these podcasts? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, well, sure, I could do a podcast. What, what what would I what would it be? And then I thought, well, how about a Shakespeare podcast? And then I thought, fuck, I don't want to do it alone. And the very first thing that I thought of was, let me see if I can convince Lisa Ann to do this with me. <laughs> because I will, I will, you know, that would be an unnatural fit. So I pitched it to her and it wasn't, it wasn't a hard pitch. I think you were pretty convinced early on. Because it's basically what we would end up talking about when we Skyped anyway. Right, right. So we'll sit around <laughs> and we'll sit around and, and have a drink and talk about Shakespeare just for fun anyway. So we thought, why, why the fuck not make it into a podcast? And then yeah, the title was right there for us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we're almost at the end of our second year. That's right. We're our wow. second anniversary is coming up coming up in what two episodes? Yeah. Something like Congratulations. that. Congratulations. Wow. Thank you. How are you gonna celebrate? Oh. Um mm. so so our the last episode of our of our second year is gonna be kind of a retrospective, but this time we have um we have pod pal, pod pen pals, you know. Um, so we have invited some of our pod pen pals on to talk about some of the stuff that we've talked about over the year. They're going to tell us which was their favorite episode. Um, one guy we're having on had sent us, we did a, um, Shakespeare on film series and we did Hamlet by itself as, because there's so many and we missed this one. And this one of our listeners told us about it and found a recording of it and sent it to us. So we are going to invite him on and uh, we'll have to watch it before that <laughs> will be like our 95th Hamlet. But we will. So so that'll be fun. Your 95th Hamlet. Seriously. Oh, you don't even know. We, I bet. I mean, we, we've done episodes about film Hamlet and film Romeo and Juliet and other and the Scottish play and that kind of thing. And there's so much material 
when and listen, I'm not complaining because we love these, we love this material, or we obviously wouldn't be doing this podcast. But when you're doing film Hamlet, let's say, there's a lot. So you have to sit down and we watch like what ended up being like 10 or 11 versions of Hamlet within like the space of a week. And That's a lot of Hamlet. It, it's like, it's like, you know, the way foie gras is made is, is how it feels at a certain point. <laughs> you might have to inform our audience about stuffing, that. <laughs> stuffing Hamlet into us until foie gras Hamlet comes out of us. <laughs> There's a reason it's illegal in New York. That's right. Um, bringing up movies and things, I do have to ask, um, kind of about adaptations. Is there a certain movie adaptation that you love? If so, what is it? Lion of, of, King. Obviously, of Shakespeare. Um, yeah, Lion King. <laughs> Lion King. Lion King is yes. great. But it's Hamlet. So do you do you mean like an app? But that's a, an excellent question. Do you mean like a straight on shape, like um, like the most recent Macbeth that was done with Denzel Washington, or do you mean movies that are inspired by Shakespeare, like Ooh. The Lion King? Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go both. Uh, one that is a like an adaptation from that, um, so inspired by that, and I'm gonna go a straight adaptation of the uh, Shakespeare version. I think my favorite, well, I love Lion King, right? That would be my first. And I think my favorite film, filmed version would be uh, the Christopher Plummer Hamlet. Oh, okay. So uh, the reason that I'm going uh, is because, so that's not a film. That's like a television production. But it was filmed. Right. So our, so again, I'm, I'm nitpicking. Do you mean like, because by... <laughs> That can count if you want it to. There are so <laughs> many. There are so many. There are so many. Uh, and I still haven't seen that Christopher fucking Plummer Hamlet, which I have to do. But my, and yet my favorite <sighs> production of Hamlet is also a TV production of Hamlet, which is the Derek Jacobi BBC Hamlet from about nineteen Um And yet I'm I'm also I'm fond of the Kenneth Branagh film of Hamlet, even though it has its flaws. I it comes it comes back to me. In terms of a film Shakespeare production, I'm not saying this is the greatest one of all time, but the, the Laurence Olivier Henry V from 19, all the way back in 1944, has a special place in my heart because my parents took me to see uh, a, fil a, a showing of it in a revival house when I was like 12 years old, and I didn't really know a goddamn thing about Shakespeare, uh, but that movie made my little 11-year-old eyes go bing. And I was I was hooked into Shakespeare for the rest of my life by that movie. And you know what? It actually it still holds up somewhat. It does. It, you know, it I mean, does. it's it's obviously dated, but it's it's pretty brilliant in a lot of ways. And it was the movie for me that like hooked me into the whole thing and caused the non the never ending trouble that is Shakespeare for me. I like how you put that. The never ending trouble. You, to be fair, both of Owen's parents were actors. Were it is true. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I my love of Shakespeare started when I um, skipped a grade in junior high school and got a teacher who actually made us read it out loud. And in junior high. Yeah. It was, a, it was, you know, 
it's meant to be read out loud, right? You can't send kids in, in, you know, eighth grade home and say, you know, read Act One of Romeo and Juliet and write a paper on it. They don't fucking know what it means. Sorry. That, <laughs> no. Do I recall correctly, Lisa Ann, that it was Romeo and Juliet that that teacher taught? Yes. Yep. And you know what? Again, even though this was a little after my experience with that Olivier film, when I was a freshman in high school, I had a brilliant teacher, Susan Sobel Feldman. I hope she's still around. Uh, that taught us Romeo and Juliet. And even though we didn't read it aloud as a play, she was a brilliant teacher. And the choice of that play for fucking 14 year olds is ideal. Of course. It's about teenagers and sex and violence. And that's always been a play. We, 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 we joke, but it's not a joke. Um, if you think it's a dick joke, it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially in Romeo and Juliet. That's, that's not a joke at all. I mean, there, no. there, are more, there are more references. There are more dirty references throughout, not just in Romeo and Juliet, although that might be the biggest treasure trove. But all of Shakespeare is replete with really, really body stuff. Oh, yeah. And that is something that I think my eighth grade teacher who taught us Romeo and Juliet just kind of skimmed over because she showed us the Franco Zeffirelli um, movie from like 1970. Um, and we got to the part of like the bedroom scene. And so she's like, and we're going to forward this. Uh-huh. Um, Aw, man, they actually had, I, I love that version. And I think they had a really lovely connection. Yeah, like if I, that, I agree. I, and and since you asked the question about movies, I would say that as you know, and it is shown in high schools and middle schools a lot, and it's become cliche. But you know what? It holds up. That Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet is pretty damn good. Have that's, you ever gone back and watched that scene? Because you should. They're pretty hot. They're two beautiful young kids, and that scene is hot. I will neither deny nor confirm uh, that I have watched that scene. <laughs> Cap said uh, they skipped it in my 10th grade English class, too, back in 1989. Oh, pity. Go back and watch it. You know, there's there's some frontal nudity. Yeah, big time. Just, I mean, if, if people are into that, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they I... set it up really well, though, in that movie. You know, like, okay, so one of the problems for me uh, out of many problems in the most recent Macbeth or the Scottish play, as Owen says, because he won't say it, um, was that I didn't feel like, A, they were too old, but also I didn't feel like they had any kind of a connection. And the kids in that Zeffirelli, Romeo and Juliet had a spark that you could see on screen from the very first scene. Yeah, the, Ze the Zeffirelli, yeah. Romeo and Juliet is has a real vitality to it. And the, <laughs> the most recent Macbeth, movie which a lot of people love lisa ann and i i think both agree it was a, it, i i wanted to love it and it, it's just it's not good it's beautifully shot and it's gorgeous to look at but it's kind of dead on arrival in terms of the the story and sadly the acting in the major roles is I hate to say it because I'm an admirer of both of the, the lead actors. Very much so. But there, mm -hmm. it's not successful in this movie. It's not, and some of the, some of the supporting uh, actors are fantastic, but it feels to me like I mean, it's such. You know, Macbeth is my favorite. I've played Macbeth, I've played Lady Macbeth, and I've directed. You know, so I really know it inside and out, and I always say that 
they had the most amazing relationship in Shakespeare until they didn't, right? But it's the fact that they had this amazing relationship that makes what happens to them so, so horrible. Well, and one of... One of the things, I, I agree with you entirely, of course, and one of the things that that play turns on is the question of their children or lack right. thereof. And, and you know, they don't have children, which is a ma major thing. And, you know, Macbeth says to Lady Macbeth, bring forth men children only, which very strongly implies that she could, in fact... Right. That she's that. still of childbearing years. And, and so when you have, I mean, and again, I, I hate to say this because I'm a huge admirer of Frances McDormand, but Frances McDormand is not of childbearing years. And that makes a big problem in that play. I also think that Denzel's a little too old for it. And I would be willing to go along with that and go, eh, if they had been great. But Honestly, in that movie, it's it it I, which I went in wanting to love. I felt like neither of them even really understood what the lines meant that they were saying. It was kind of embarrassing. Yeah, and I also felt like I felt like nobody understood what that story was about because there's such a beautiful arc to those characters, and it was kind of like flat, 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 flat. Let's freak out, and mm. it didn't come from anywhere. Yeah. It was to me. It was all about the look and the and the composition and the. It you was know. gorgeous, and it, it was, was gorgeous, but it was not. It was uh, for me not successful. I was very disappointed, but I, but I don't want to dwell on that because there are so many films. There's a brilliant, brilliant for anybody that's interested and in, uh, in seeing a filmed or at least televised Macbeth that but I think Lisanne, you agree with me is brilliant is um, the Nicole Williamson, Jane mm. LaFontaine uh, version again, shot, I think in 1981 by the BBC. And again, it's a televised production and the production values are crappy, but the performances are outstanding, outstanding. And by and that's by far the best, Macbeth I've ever seen other than the Akira Kurosawa film Throne of Blood. Right, right. But but for anybody that's interested and who might be a Judy Dent or Ian McKellen fan, there is also a recorded version of when they did it together. Not as successful as the the Williamson La Potere, but 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 the single most amazing Lady Macbeth moment I have ever seen hands down in my entire life so in that whole uh the whole hand washing scene when she's going crazy um there's there's a moment written into in the text when it's supposed to be some sort of cry out from lady macbeth while she's washing her hands and in this thing and judy dench makes what i have chills just thinking about it makes what i can only describe as the most pitiful unearthly sound of pain I have ever heard. Yeah. I mean, it, it I agree. Uh, it, it's, an, it's, it's worth seeing just for that. It's the moment in that scene. What does the doctor say? What a sigh is there? I think. What a sigh is there? He says. So she's, uh, so lady, lady Macbeth has clearly like made a sound and Judy Dench took that and, and Trevor Nunn directed it too. So you got to give him credit for this, but she, makes she's you know she's 
obviously sleepwalking and she's got PTSD and she's dealing with all of this shit and she emits a sound that can I can only describe as what it might be like if your soul was ripped out of your body. It is beyond it, it is beyond beyond bone chilling. And yeah. it's worth watching just for that. Yeah, and before it, like what's written in the text before he says, Oh, what a sigh is here is just oh oh oh. Yeah. That's the text. Yeah. And she Yeah, she she, she earned her promotion to James Bond's boss just from that moment. <laughs> and of course, James Bond himself is now playing Macbeth on Broadway. Oh yeah? Oh yeah, Daniel Craig is right now uh, uh, here doing well, it. Is he back from COVID yet? Yeah, yeah, I think it's reopened. Oh, good. Huh. I haven't, I haven't seen it, but I'm hoping to. Fingers crossed. I would love to see that. I kind of also wanted to see the uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch. Which oh, I was, has he done it? I, I think he did it over Across the Pond, um, but I never really saw any reviews of it. I just saw he was doing it. He did which which one? Uh, Scottish play, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Hmm. Kid I... Harrington from Game of Thrones is playing Henry V right now. Oh, nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, I think Benedict Cumberbatch is actually really good casting in that role, though. I would, I, and Daniel yeah. Craig as well. I think that's fine. Yeah. They look like they could be soldiers, you know? The well, that's the other thing. I buy Denzel as a soldier. It's just that I, I, I ideally think that he should, that that character should be younger. He is he is the nicest man in the world though, so I give him just a tiny bit of slack. Okay, I do want to ask you because I know that you've done some work with. Uh, well, you both have done some work with some amazing people. Um, but one thing, if you haven't seen it or had it on your radar, there's a recorded version from the Met Opera of Verdi's uh, Scottish play uh, from circuit like 2008-2009, and. I'm going to say not my favorite production, but the Lady Macbeth scene from that, absolutely stunning. Wow. Um, I, haven't seen, I haven't seen that, but I will have to. Who is it? Do you know who's yeah, singing? You know? Oh, it is an Italian name that has been lost to time and my memory, um, but it is like their primary rec recorded version that's available on their website. Um, cool. So I'm going to go check that out. Totally. Um. Kind of going back to some folks that you have worked with, uh, Lisa Ann, you told me that you have some very uh, interesting <laughs> stories to tell me about uh, some famous people uh, that you've worked with. Uh, would you like to care to share a story or two? Sure. Um, so as, as she pulls the hair behind her ears. <laughs> so I did. Uh, I was in a film called The Next Three Days, um, starring Russell Crowe and Elizabeth Banks, and my scene was with. The two of them, if you haven't seen it, Elizabeth Banks is supposed to have murdered somebody and they put her in jail. And Russell Crowe is her husband and he's trying to get her out. And he comes to see her in the jail and they're having a conversation and they get into an argument. And I'm playing a prison guard that has to go up to them and like break it up and tone them down. So it was directed by Paul Haggis. So, oh, I know who that is. Yeah, right. So I get it. He was lovely. So I get on set. 
and uh, I'm there and Elizabeth Banks comes in and, you know, we meet each other and talking and we're waiting for Russell and Paul Haggis is there and the whole crew is there and everybody's fucking there and we're waiting for Russell 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour and 10 minutes after we all got on set, Russell comes out, doesn't look at anybody, sits in his chair. Paul Haggis says, do you want to run the lines? Russell says, yeah. So we run the lines, still hasn't looked at anybody, never, you know, looks at me, never introduces himself, nothing. So we go for the first take, we do the first take. And uh, I should preface this by saying that when we were waiting for Russell, Paul Haggis's direction to me was just get in Russell's face. I was like, okay. So we get to that line and I get in Russell's face and Russell's like, okay, do another couple of takes. They're going to change camera angles and we're just waiting. I'm talking to one of my best friends who's the props guy and I hear Lisa Ann looking around. I don't know who it is. Talking to Matt, Lisa Ann. I look over. It's Russell Crowe sitting at a table and he's calling me over. And I'm like, yeah. He says, come here. And I said, yeah. And he said, so you can't stand on your mark. And for maybe people that don't know, a mark is an X where you're supposed to end up because the camera, where the camera ends up is based on that. So he says, you can't stand on your mark. And I look back and I'm like, but it's my mark thinking, Academy Award winning director Paul Haggis told me to stand there. That's where I'm going to stand. He said, no, no, no. Look behind you. I'm like, yeah. He said, you see that camera behind you? And I was like, yeah. And he said, well, when you're standing on your mark, I can't be seen by that camera. And that's not good. And I said, that's not good for you. And he like backed oh. up and looked at me and started to laugh. <laughs> and I was like, he was like, no, no, I mean, it's not good for the, the camera. And I was like, whatever. And I walked away. And from that moment on, he was my best friend because he was just giving me shit because he was like being a bully. And I was like, fuck you, bitch. You're not any more talented than I am. You're just luckier. <laughs> you know, and I stood up to him. And that's what you Punch the shark on the nose. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, Good Paul for had you. to send me a crew jacket, like overnight mail. It was really cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah. One thing I'll, uh, that I do kind of want to talk about is um, when I when I personally started out looking at Shakespeare, reading Shakespeare, even back in middle school, getting over the hump of understanding the old English was was a little bit of something that was difficult. And it's still kind of difficult for me at times. Um what honestly has helped you throughout the years make sense of some of that text? And maybe what advice do you give to those who want to be Shakespeare performers? It's learning a new language. That's what it is, you know, and you have to do use the resources that you have, such as Owen. Well, I mean, there are so many. I, I would say for people that are really um, concerned about it and having a hard time with it, maybe the maybe the easiest thing to do is to access the No Fear Shakespeare uh, series of, of publications of Shakespeare plays that literally lay out on like two sides. One side will be what Shakespeare wrote and on the other side directly opposite will be a page that has 
it quote unquote translated into you know modern English so that you can really make sense of it. Uh, so the, the, these are readily available online. Uh, some of the texts you can, I think you can access for free, but you can certainly purchase the uh, the, the editions, and that 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 is a like an actual literal translation. But I would also say that, look, actually, I'll I'll put it in the form of a question: Do you find that it's easier for you to understand Shakespeare if you watch it and hear actors perform it if they're doing it well than it is to read it on a page in terms of understanding? It depends on the production because mm -hmm. with certain adaptations, some of the like delivery changes. And I feel like that somewhat changes the meaning or the actual context. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, maybe a mixture of both. If you, if the bet, if you see Shakespeare done simply and well, um, you know, that for I, a prime example for me would be the Kenneth Branagh movie of Henry V. They're, they're doing it so simply and the actors are so well steeped in Shakespeare that they so understand what, if the actors understand what they're saying, you'll understand it better. Um, so by all means, it's good to get a, a, a version of like No Fear Shakespeare. But uh, another, another way to put this is years ago, I went back to grad school and it took, I took a Chaucer class and I wondered if we would be, and, and Chaucer, you know, is written in not just like the English of Shakespeare, but literal old English. So it's really like a foreign language. And I wondered if we would be reading that in translation, but no, we read it in the original. And I thought, oh my God, I'll never be able to understand this. And literally within about two classes of reading this stuff out loud and by oneself, it's it starts to make sense as you start to understand what they're talking about. So familiarity is a, a huge part of it. But, it. but yeah, I mean, for people who are having real trouble, uh, I think the No Fear Shakespeare's are a, a definite way to overcome that, that burden of trying to understand a different language. Yeah, the website, there's a No Sweat Shakespeare, which is a free website that they also do the same thing. Um, for somebody that might have a little more, this sounds like you, you know, have a little more experience with it. There are resources that you can use to look up this, these words that you've never seen before, right? Like there's something called the Shakespeare Lexicon, and it has, not you can't use, say, every word in Shakespeare, but almost all the words in Shakespeare, what it means in which specific usage in which specific play. Now this, again, yes, this is very academic, but like for anybody that wants to, you know, any actor, I say that these things, these are things you have to know, right? Like you have to know that a word means something in King Lear, but it means something else in Romeo and Juliet, right? And there are resources for that kind of thing. And, you know, like the more academic you get also, you can look at the iambic pentameter, you know, the poetry of the music. I teach a thing called first folio technique, um, which encourages actors to look at the first folio and look at the iambic pentameter and um, all of the punctuation, like each, like each piece of punctuation means something different, right? Like what follows a colon is a restatement that's more logical. What follows a semicolon is more impassioned, things like that. There's all of these tools that you can learn 
to use to understand the text to a deeper level. But it, but it's really arcane, right? And to be, and to be clear, to, to sort of define terms, when Lisa Ann is talking about the first folio, she's referring to the, def the semi-definitive edition of Shakespeare's plays that was published in 1623, uh, seven years after his death. In, uh, which includes about half of the plays that he wrote that don't appear anywhere else. But there are half of his plays, the other half, that appear mm -hmm. in many different versions that got published during his life. The point is that Shakespeare never published his plays while he was alive. And even the first folio, which is as close as a definitive version as we have from close to his lifetime, the punctuation that's in the first folio. And even the word choice and the, the lettering is not definitive. It's not, it's not authorized by Shakespeare. It's the choice of editors. And right, it's somebody remem remembering what they thought the script was. And, and through the hundreds of years that we've seen all of these different versions of Shakespeare, if, you're, if you just go and buy the Folger edition, let's say, of, 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 of Romeo and Juliet, it's going to be filled with edit, editorial choices, including uh, line count and punctuation and that kind of thing that has nothing to do with Shakespeare. That is the arbitrary choice of editors over hundreds of years. So it's it can be confusing. Yeah, I remember in high school, my English teacher was like, okay, and next unit we have Shakespeare. And I was already familiar, so I wasn't scared of it, but I had friends in school that were. And I, I remember I was babysitting a, a kid in the neighborhood, actually four kids in the neighborhood in one family, and they had just gotten a DVD player. <laughs> which also dates me. <laughs> it was like a big deal. Sure. And so they had just gotten this DVD player. And so I was, uh, they're like, oh, we got this new DVD. You should, was it a DVD? Maybe it was a VHS. I don't remember. Anyway, they had just gotten the Mel Gibson Hamlet. And I had never seen it. You know, I was, I don't know how, how old I was, 14, 15. Anyway, so I was like, okay, I don't know anything about this. I didn't even know who Mel Gibson was. Um, but they're like, we think you'd really like it. You should watch it. And so uh, I'm watching Hamlet after the kids went to bed. And I got sucked in. And that was it for me. Um, but I remember taking that, that later to high school and um, telling my friends that, no, just go watch Hamlet. You'll be fine. Just go watch this Hamlet. And they did not get it the same way I did. Um, and that didn't do for them the same thing it did for me. But um, so when we dove into high school Shakespeare, I was ready. I was like, oh, yeah, we get to finally do this part. And everyone else is dreading it. And I can't remember my point for the life of me. <laughs> oh, but it had to do with their fear and how at that time there wasn't. I don't remember there being something to make it easier for them or make it more palatable. It's all about how it's taught. If you have a mm -hmm. good teacher, really like I, you know, um, at the Pittsburgh public theater there, there was a Shakespeare intensive over the summer and it would be kids ages like 10 to 17. And we would take three weeks. We would, I would cut a Shakespeare play to like a 90, 100 minute. And then we would work 
on we would go through every word and what it meant and all of that kind of stuff so you know and kids like once they get it like once they got that it was a dick joke they got all the dick jokes you know what i mean they yeah. were amazing because they're they like they're so you know they're so pure like they accept what what you're getting so i think it's so in at that theater they also do the shakespeare competition and there are teachers that make their kids do the Shakespeare competition, but like as a recitation thing. And it's deadly. It's deadly for us. It's deadly for the judges. It's deadly for the kids. It's deadly for everybody. Because, you know, I, I, I understand that it's an exercise in memorization, but, but you're killing their love for, for Shakespeare before they've even begun. Yeah. You know? So I really do think it's, it's how it's taught. Without, without a doubt, and 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 it it must be said that it can be hard. And I know I certainly know that people are kids, especially like scared of Shakespeare. Or God, it's going to be boring. And if I had if I had one goal or one wish um, to accomplish, it would be to remove that stigma and let people know that it isn't as scary as you think it is. But you know, I just thought of this metaphor. Maybe I don't know if it'll hold up, but it's a little bit like that. And again, this will date me, but like, remember Magic Eye? When you like the the thing where you're you're trying to see the figure within the weird, oh, yeah, 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 and you can't see it right away, but mm -hmm. once you see it, it's really obvious to you, right? So Shakespeare's a little bit like that. Like it seems like you can't understand what's going on, but once you get the once the it clicks for you and you see what it really is, then it's comprehensible, and then it's genuinely magic. And, you know, then a, a whole world opens up for you um, that becomes much, much easier the, 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 the more you see it. And, and it's really, it's not one moment, but it, it, is, it is kind of a click to understand it. And then you're in. And it can be relatable to now, which is something that, like you said, a good teacher. Oh my God, yes. Could relate. I had an eleven. I had an eleven. That Shakespeare teaches. I mean, let me put it this way: we're talking about Macbeth quite a bit on this particular episode, right? So, let there there's a a, a person of great energy and ambition who, through nefarious purposes and bad choices and genuine evil, ascends to great power, and the more power he accrues the worse he becomes and the worse decisions that he makes and the worse he makes everybody around him until everything becomes a gigantic disaster and his country becomes hell. Does this sound familiar to you? Because hmm. haven't, we, haven't we lived through that in the last few years? So that's pretty fucking relevant. Yeah. And, you know, that's just one play. It's and relatable. look at the look at the politics of Julius Caesar. You know, many many modern day productions of Julius Caesar have been done. You know, politics is politics. It doesn't matter whether it was you know in Rome BC or last year. Yeah, right. We don't ever seem to learn. Or, <laughs> That's on, true. On a more micro level, one thing that I often think: what Romeo and Juliet is such a brilliant play, but you know, like the scene where Juliet fakes her own death so that like 
the you know, I mean, it's a little dodgy in terms of the science, but she takes the dra- the drug that makes it seem like she's dead, and then her parents come in, and finally they appreciate her. And can you just not see any teenage teenage person of either sex going? When I'm dead, you'll understand how I feel. And yeah. in that scene, we get to see it like viscerally. So yeah, it's it's relevant in almost every play. Like there's relevance everywhere, mm-hmm. from and, and from small things to big things. We actually did a in eleventh grade. We did a reading of Julius Caesar, and we set it up like it was set up in a high school. And we kind of put it into context. Um, and I know that there was some production that they did with all girls. Um, I played Cassius. Yes. All female production. Um, and we we set it up and we had one person playing uh, Julius Caesar, who is kind of like the 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 king or the queen of the the school itself. And we read it from that context and it helped click a little bit for it. Followed up closely after that point with o, with Otello, and that is the point at which I started to realize how much of a pervert um, that he kind of was, and how many dick jokes were actually in certain things. And I didn't under—I still don't understand them to this day. But I will never forget sitting in there, sitting in front of my 11th grade English teacher, talking about the rising mast, and she goes, "And what do you think that refers to?" And we're all just kind of sitting there, like shyly looking at our books and looking at her, and we're like, "I have no clue." And she goes, "It's a penis." <laughs> Bless her. <laughs> just yeah. in the middle of the school. Now she couldn't quite say it's about a dick joke, but just right. I will never forget her screaming, "It's a penis!" Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh well, let me. I mean, just just to say. For instance, and we this is we mentioned this in our very first podcast ever. It's even in the titles of Shakespeare's plays. For for instance, Much Ado About Nothing is one of Shakespeare's more delightful comedies. And it does, and in fact, the title is, you know, it's sort of like as you like it. It's a throwaway title. Oh, this play is a light, you know, it's just fluff. But what if you don't know the parlance of the time, nothing is slang in Elizabethan England for vagina. It either means uh, a, a vagina is an O thing, or it's a like a penis is a thing, so a vagina is a no thing, right? So the truth is, on, on one level, the title Much Ado About Nothing means Much Ado About Pussy. Yep. Hmm. Yep. So it, he, he went so far as to put these things into the titles of his play, plays. Right. And I mean, remember, you know, his audience were the groundlings, you know, I mean, yes, he also a large part of his audience, a large part of part of his audience were the groundlings. I mean, yes, he also performed for court, but it wasn't like the court wasn't having like, you know, affairs in and out, as it were. No, and, and, and the the groundlings and the court alike, they wanted, they they, they obviously wanted this stuff because yes. it's not only, listen, these references are not only in Shakespeare's plays. He was the master of them. But if you, there, there are dozens, and, and this is another thing we get into in our podcast, people make the mistake of thinking of Shakespeare as operating in a vacuum and being no. like a monolithic playwright with no other playwrights around him. But to study Shakespeare without studying his contemporaries is sort of like, I don't know, 
studying the 20th century, uh, 20th century American theater and only studying Tennessee Williams. He's brilliant, but there are dozens of other playwrights. So there are dozens and dozens of other plays and, and playwrights and hundreds of plays written around the same time of Shakespeare, including people that worked with him in his own theater. And they too are full of the dirtiest stuff that you can imagine. So what are, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Playwrights often work together then right. as well. And that's kind of one of those things that when I watch like historical dramas or I watch adaptations um, about Shakespeare's life, I always kind of have to wonder how much of it is actually true and how much is it um, some vast amount of artistic liberties. Well, that's a good point. And, you know, they're usually, I mean, listen, artistic liberties are always taken and that's fine. Um, a movie like Shakespeare in Love, for instance, takes a lot of artistic liberties, but it's also, it's, they're taken by really smart people. Tom Stoppard yeah. is one of the co-authors of that screenplay. and Brilliant he's, playwright. He's a fucking genius. Um, so even though liberties are taken in that movie, they're taken well. Um, there are other movies, most notoriously of recent vintage, I would say, uh, Anonymous, which is a movie that puts forth the idea that Shakespeare didn't write his plays. And mm. uh, there's no there's no kind way to put it. That that movie is made by a batch of incompetent assholes. <laughs> let, let, let us say that there are Stratfordians who believe that Shakespeare wrote his plays, and there are Oxfordians who believe that he it was not him but somebody else. Owen and I are pretty rabid Stratfordians, just so you know. Well, and, 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 and to be plays. clear, not to give too much credence to the other side, the truth is, in, in academic circles, to be an anti-Stratfordian, which is to say, to be of the opinion that Shakespeare didn't write his plays, is basically the equivalent of being a climate change denier. Yeah, I mean, the the, the it's it's a it's academically and scholastically established that Shakespeare wrote his plays. Um, but but to your point, there there are many plays about uh, uh, many movies and plays about Shakespeare's time that take many artistic liberties with history and some are you know i mean some are a little more careful shall we say than others the one that i enjoyed more on the musical theater track is and juliet where he's having this um somewhat argument with his with his wife about how the ending of romeo and juliet should have actually ended um, and it turns into this very jukebox musical sort of situation, but woven in that is this argument and um, somewhat reconciliation of um, William Shakespeare and his wife Anne um, regarding his writing of the story. Um, and I thought it was a, a very unique take on that and a funny adaptation. Um, hopefully we're going to see a, an American transfer at some point, but for yeah. right now it lives over. Did you see it in London? I did not. Um, I saw it through somewhat illegal means that I'm not going to get into. Uh, fair enough. I was in, I was in London in 2019 when it was open. I think it had only recently opened, and I didn't get to see it. So uh, I hope it comes here too, because I've, I've like you, I've heard great. Well, you've seen it, but I've heard great things, and I'd be fascinated to see it. 
And this is also my time to say, PSA, please buy tickets to your local theater. Please do not binge on the internet. Um, please go support your local theater productions. Uh, we do not support the uh, the black arts means of obtaining theatrical performances. Speaking of that, there's, um, by you, Trey, there's Shakespeare Carolina, which um, I don't know if you've delved into that, but Zaid has been part of that. And he did, a couple of years ago, they did a three-person... I held up four fingers. <laughs> three, <laughs> three, three person. Um, it was like 10 different Shakespeare plays in an hour. The and works half. of William Shakespeare abridged. So the complete I, works of William Shakespeare abridged. That might've been it, but it was the, this fast, everybody's yeah. changing costumes really fast. Yeah. They're running back and forth and, and everybody. Yeah. It's, it was actually it's hilarious. Pretty funny. And I enjoyed that immensely. They're in the audience, like everybody was pretty close and kind of an intimate audience. And they're like in the audience among people uh, acting out scenes. And that was really fun. Um, but Shakespeare Carolina out by you, Trey, is pretty great. Hey, Owen, you know, the, we didn't, this wasn't a play, but remember that you and I were doing Shakespeare scenes for like schools and stuff like oh, that. Oh, right. Yeah, we did. We toured around somewhat doing, what do we call that? Shakespeare. Shakespeare, the Shakespeare, Shakespeare, I think something like that. Yeah, I did a but we did scenes from the Scottish play, Henry Ford, Julius Caesar, a bunch of things. So that is true. That's another Shakespeare thing that we've done together. Right. That sounds fun. It was was fun. fun. (laughs) If you could sit down, if you could choose one character from any of Shakespeare's plays to sit and have lunch with. Who would you choose and why? That's a great question. Wow. I'm torn. You know what, though? Like, I'm thinking Hamlet in one sense, but it's not because I played him, but I got to say Falstaff. That would certainly be fun. I mean, to sit down and have lunch. I mean, who are you going to have lunch with that A, will be more entertaining to watch him eat and drink and B, who's funnier and more intelligent? I think I think somebody that's a really great question. I think I would like to have I would think I would like to have a beer with with Hal. Before, because I'm so I so with, with, with Prince Hal. With, with Prince Henry. Hal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, with who, Henry the 5th when yeah. he is before he becomes Henry the mm-hmm. 5th. In Henry the 4th parts 1 and 2, he's young and fucking around and hanging out with Falstaff and you know it's so interesting he has this wonderful speech in Henry the fourth part one where he basically says the first line is I know you all and will a while uphold the unyoked humor of your idleness you know he says I know I know who I am I know what I'm supposed to be doing I know that when the time comes I'm going to make it happen and when the time comes and I make it happen I'm going to be the greatest king you've ever seen so y'all are going to be totally blown away and i just there's something so amazing to me about that speech i would love to sit down with that person because who he is as a youth and who he ends up being as a man are you know it's such an amazing range so so here so here my question goes like this do you want to have lunch with that kid to say what's wrong with you or to say like, what are you like? Why are you such an asshole? 
I want to have lunch with him right before he goes into battle. Well, that, okay, so wait. When on, so on the when. So you want to have lunch? So where on the time? Because it's three plays. So where on the timeline do you want to have lunch with him? When he's Henry V or when he's Prince Hal? With because that monologue is super early. It so. is super early. Well, I want to have lunch. I want to have lunch or beers with him when he is Hal, but already started to go into battle. Just started to do what he is born to do. So, so later on in Henry Four, Part One, yes, towards the end, like before he has the fight with Hotspur, right? Before he kills Hotspur, because yeah. my, uh, you know, my uh, obviously that's a great speech, but I mean, he's such a complicated character. I don't like. No, that's why. I, I mean, when I, I'm what I'm saying is, I'm thinking of who I want to have lunch with. That's why I thought of Hamlet because Hamlet is so complicated and fascinating, but also I don't know, like he. I, I don't know that I would have fun at that lunch. You know what I mean? Yeah. Half, at least you would enjoy the lunch. Totally. totally. You know, I mean, like, listen, I would love to have lunch with Cleopatra because I she's was just going to say that, I you was know, just going to say that Cleopatra is a fascinating, but, but, but on the other hand, I'm not sure I would get through that lunch with my head on my shoulders. Right. You know, right. Like if I said the so wrong thing, gotta be so she would careful. have me executed. You know what I'm saying? So, like, there's a lot of interesting people in Shakespeare. I, I, it would be fun to have lunch with Sir Andrew and Sir Toby from Twelfth Night. But on the other hand, you'd probably end up, like, you know, vomiting in a stall somewhere. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm 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 staying with with Falstaff. But that's it, right? His characters are so multifaceted. They're so human. And that's what makes him a great playwright. I yeah. agree. Um even even like the characters that are of the like I think back to Midsummer Night's Dream, even those characters who are more the fantasy realm for those are still written with such a very human element to them that it's very easy to kind of step into or easy to get caught up in their dialogue, especially when it's done well. Absolutely. Yep. That's, yep. They're just, I mean, they may be fairies, you know, Obron and Titania may be fairies, but they're a male fairy and a female fairy who are having a fight. Yeah. And again, they're assholes. So they're relatable. Right. <laughs> I might be a little more of an asshole than she is. I think. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You all, know what? I, all I, the I, way. I think that you Just know a little bit. She do, she doesn't actually like enforce bestiality on anybody. <laughs> right. Which he totally does. And he steals her child. He steals her child and makes her have sex with a donkey. So right. who's worse? And watches and laughs. And watches and laughs. For those that are listening to the podcast, this is a, a very real plot line inside of Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, if you think that we're crazy, please go watch a production of Midsummer Night's Dream ASAP. Yes. We're not making this up. Nope. It's all true. We didn't write them. We just, about <laughs> we just, we just comment. We just have a podcast. That's all. <laughs> so so we, we, are, we are two very opinionated people but for sure <laughs> and i but, love it but, but go ahead and read midsummer night's dream and you'll see mm -hmm. what we're talking about yeah i had an idea about oh my god uh, talk about a dick joke sorry <laughs> my, one of my favorite dick jokes in in is in 
Midsummer Night's Dream, when when uh, Demetrius is trying to get rid of Helena, and he says, "And wood within this wood," because she's coming on to him, and he's trying to push her away. Wood within this wood. Yes, that's what he means. Do you mean the scene in which he threatens to rape her and kill her? Yes. Yeah. That's true too. I'm sorry, Emily. I'm no, it's well, okay. See, it's what I told you. I get, I get passionate. I just yeah. No, I love it. I love it. In fact, I had this idea, and maybe it would be worth having you guys come back on the podcast for when, when, um, back when Trey and I worked together, uh, we used to do this thing with our coworkers. I don't know if you were there for this, Trey. We would take major Disney characters, and we would do like a tournament spreadsheet. So you would have like. <laughs> I remember one time it was Aladdin. Was it Aladdin? Yeah, it was Aladdin versus Moana. Nice. And I have the video still somewhere. It's on YouTube as well of James and Danielle just screaming at each other (laughs) because she was pro Aladdin and he was pro Moana and they could not come to an agreement on it was down to the last battle and who would win. And it was we I still don't know who won, but they were arguing. I believe Obviously Moana might have had the better argument. So this was um, like like a tournament of who would win in a fight. Yeah, that's yeah. what it. Because my, I, I I'm gonna just put my money on Sebastian right now to win the entire tournament. Sebastian from The Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, I can I, I hear I, why? <laughs> like first of all, pincers. Second of all, who can resist that accent? He's just going to talk, and no matter who he fights, is going to let their guard down, and then he'll win. Oh, clever. Oh, well, so if we're does... talking about being able to talk your way out of something, then it would be Lumiere. I'm just saying, also, Sebastian, I think, would fight dirty. That, that is true. Sebastian would, he would. Lumiere has fire, though. Lumiere <laughs> has fire. But Sebastian has like balls. <laughs> like balls. <laughs> so my idea though is to do this with Shakespeare characters. We're in. I love it. We're in. Okay. We're in. We'll talk about that later then, for sure. Um and I had another question and it's completely gone. <laughs> it was along those lines. Now I lost it. It doesn't matter. I'll think of it eventually. We actually did a couple of episodes. Um where we got some dear, dear, wonderful artist friends of ours, and we played um, Trivial Pursuit Shakespeare, and also Bard's Dispense Profanity, which is the Shakespeare version of Cards Against Humanity. Oh! Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Hard, and we were all, obviously, adjusting our attitudes while it was going on. It was pretty hilarious. Adjusting our attitudes. So like possibly with heroin. Possibly. No. I said possibly. (laughs) No. (laughs) What are some of your favorite phrases from Shakespeare pieces? Wow. Wow. So one of my favorite things to say, weirdly enough, never thought it would, was when I was playing Cassius. And it's in the scene where Brutus is like, where Mark Antony is like, oh, just let me be alone. Let, let, me, let me be alone with the body and all this kind of stuff. And, and Brutus is like, oh, we killed him. But yes, Mark Antony. And Cassius is like, 
standing in the back with, you know, the character's head is exploding. And the line is, Brutus, a word with you. I love that. Because it's so, it's Shakespeare, but it's so clearly translated to modern day. That was just super fun. There, there are, I mean, it's, it, Shakespeare's language, I mean, to, to choose a favorite is, is impossible. But I will say, I often wonder about how the, the job that people have that have to translate Shakespeare into other languages, because there's a particularity yes. to the way Shakespeare writes that I don't think suffers translation. And one, and, and, and again, it's an off the beaten track phrase from Shakespeare. But I, I wonder how would you translate, how, what words would you use to say this in another language? It's in Hamlet when uh, Hamlet has killed Polonius and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are questioning him. And he knows that they're spies for the king. And he knows that they just want information from him. And he says to them, Besides, to be demanded of a sponge, what replication should be made by the son of a king? Right. How do you translate How, that? And, and that? And and even though that's not a famous line from Shakespeare, to me, it's a, a, a perfect line. You know what? It's like you hear that, that nobody else that ever lived would write that line of dialogue. It's sort of, and, and this is a very different thing. It's sort of like in, in Reservoir Dogs, uh, early on, there's a character that says, where's the commode in this dungeon? I got to take a squirt. <laughs> and you hear that line and you know Quentin Tarantino wrote that line. Yeah. Yep. There's, a, there's, a, that there's no other writer that would have written it that way. So, and, and Shakespeare is obviously the king of that kind of thing. The, uh, the other line I think that was the line that I learned something about myself most was I had played Lady Macbeth and then I played Macbeth and he's got that famous speech. If it were done when tis done, then oh. twere well, it were done quickly. Now I've heard every, the most brilliant Macbeths I've ever seen never said it the way I said it as Macbeth. And I think it's because I'm a woman because if it were done, is one tense when tis done is another tense. And one of the things we know about Macbeth is that he is wavering, right? He wants to kill the king, but he doesn't know that's, you know, all about his wife saying, you know, rip the baby from me, all this stuff. You said you were going to do it. So as a woman, I, and I don't know if it's because I'm a woman, I'd been going through that and I suddenly realized that it's, it's, he, he is correcting himself. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. Because that play is all about his ambition and him having to stick to his guns. And I had never, I had never heard it done like that. Hmm. And I thought, is that, you know, is that, you know, I guess, you know, some sociologist could go into it, but maybe women think that way because women are always having to, you know, they're always being put down or whatever, or not being sure of their decisions and having to work harder or stick to it harder or whatever. I don't know what it was, but it was just a mind blowing moment for me that I had seen this play or read this play 
you know, maybe a hundred times. And that had never occurred to me until that moment. One other line that occurs to me, since you ask about particular lines in Shakespeare is again, not, not a famous one, but it's from Richard II, which is for me, the play in which Shakespeare really, really first attains his maturity as a writer uh, it's about Richard II, who is a king who was deposed and then murdered. And in this particular scene, he's in he's in a dungeon and he's contemplating mortality and, you know, existence. He does. He, he's also gone a little crazy. He doesn't know that he's about to be murdered. But when he's contemplating existence, one thing that he says that always has stuck with me is he says, but whatever I be nor I nor any man that but man is with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing. And it anticipates Hamlet in a lot of ways. And it's a, it's a tangled phrase in a lot of ways. And I'm rhyming now like Shakespeare, but um, <laughs> you know, what, what he's basically saying is nobody is satisfied with anything until they're fucking dead. Right. And, you know, like, no, like, there is no pleasing us. There is no way for us to be happy. So with, with, nor I, but any man that but man is with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable phrase. And, you know, um, I like it. <laughs> yeah. Shakespeare knew what an awful species the human being <laughs> is. Really, he really did. You know, but also celebrated those parts of us that are beautiful. So, yeah. What are oh Trey? Were you going to ask something? No, formulating my question because she uh, they both said something, and I'm trying to formulate the question that I need to ask from that. So go ahead. Do it. Actually, do it because I was going to take it a different direction. So go ahead. Uh, butterfly moment. It flew away from me. Go. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's um. Okay. What, in all the years you've played Shakespeare characters, what is a, an item or a piece of clothing that you uh, wish you could have kept forever? Wish oh, I could have kept. She's got something, or, doesn't she? Or kept. Ooh, what is this? This was the candle that I, the candle holder that I carried when I was Lady Mac. Nice. Is it? It's wood. Yeah, it's and has hard. a little handle. Very yeah. cool. Mm -hmm. I love how you just had it right there. Yeah, plus all of my Shakespeare stuff is all. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like she knew I was going to ask this. <laughs> I don't have anything nearly that cool. I do have. I do have a dagger that I carried um, when I played it, not in Hamlet, but a, a character that was playing Hamlet in a play called "I Hate Hamlet." Um, and I had a dagger that was on my person when dressed as Hamlet. And that's probably the coolest artifact that I have. But I, I have a lot of programs and, and photographs and stuff. But, I, but I'm, I'm impressed that you have that prop. You know, I always keep one thing from every show. One tangible thing from every that's show. That's cool. Whether they know it or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it means my house is full of a lot of crap. But... but it's meaningful crap <laughs> i would totally do the same thing i totally would i d i've done a lot of costuming including theater and 
I didn't think to try to keep anything. Um, but I would use those inspire. I would use a lot of the things I either made or found as inspiration to create my own. Nice. I guess that's how I did it, which is why I had this hat. Love it. I, oh, I used to go to the Renaissance Festival all the time, and I used to costume. For, still do to some degree. With your yeah. panache. Yeah. I made this one. And I'm not a milliner by any means, but the Excellent least expensive job. way to get a hat is to simply make your own. So that's very right. Cyrano. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it is uh, very Cyrano. I don't know if you can pot. There's not enough light in here, maybe, but there's a lot of plumage going on. Yes. Fabulous plumage. <laughs> and then I was going to put. Oh, we did the Ophelia shoot. That's what I was thinking. Well, I do photography as well. And I hadn't thought of a good way to, because I've loved Shakespeare for a long time. I, we've said that, but I I never thought of a good way to like depict Shakespeare with, because I do a little bit more epic fantasy kind of photography. And fun. yeah, it is. It's a lot of fun. Every photo shoot's like Christmas. It's amazing. Uh, my friend Brenna came up with the idea. She said, um, I want to go out and do a photo shoot out on like, on the near the waterfront or something and so she just posted it kind of randomly on facebook and i messaged her and i was like okay so let's brainstorm this and we came up with ophelia and we went to the north shore of minnesota which is lake superior and there's palisade head is a cliff overlooking lake superior and we i took josh he he knows that area and i did not so that was very nice we went up there and we got up crazy early to catch the sunrise. And she, I made like an overdress for her dress that she already had. And it turned out, I'll send you the pictures. Yay. Um, and we decided it should be Ophelia. And then, so it was November, no, it was the end of September. And up there it was pretty cold already. And so we decided she should go in the water, you know, get the dress all wet and slurry it around a little bit and. She took her shoes off. She's in there barefoot and we get some close-ups of her feet and stuff. And she slowly gets in there. And at one point they were like, okay, you need to like lay down in the water. <laughs> yeah, you you do know what happens to Ophelia in the play, right? <laughs> yes. Well, we weren't going to make her go where she didn't need to commit that far. Um <laughs> That's what we wanted. <laughs> but like she didn't last kind. she said i was fine until my head went under the water yeah and it was really cold and uh in fact uh josh got one of the the greatest photos of that shoot um he had he brought his waders from fishing and so he got actually out in the water and was shooting from that perspective and there's this one shot i'll send them to you so you can see that's just yeah. awesome. It was really fun. We got it published, which was extra great. And oh. um, that is the one Shakespeare photo shoot I've done. I would like to do more. I just have to figure out what that means, you know, mm -hmm. for for what sure. I do. But anyway, yeah, I don't remember why I brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was going to, I was thinking about. Yeah, See how Shakespeare is so, you know. He inspires so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that was just one character and a very short, painful journey for that one character that, you know, you take that one little 
moment and turn it into like this whole photo shoot story. Um, go ahead, Trey. Sorry. I wanted. Oh my gosh! I had another another moment. Hold on, one moment, please. While my brain continues processing, <laughs> um, we will. Uh, we'll send you guys a link while you're thinking, Trey. We'll we'll send you guys a link to. Uh, we have a, a recording of the the Macbeth that we did uh, as a benefit oh. for the Actors Fund and Broadway Cares Equity Fights. Oh, cool! Pandemic. Yes, please. Love that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I was actually watching a, a, I'm sure that you know it. Um, it is As You Like It, uh, recorded by HBO. Um, and it has, I think, Jessica Chastain in it, or it's uh, the other one. Oh, um, Bryce Dallas Howard. <laughs> Bryce Dallas I'm Howard. Sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, Bryce Dallas Howard. Um, if it's you're listening to this, I'm sorry. If you're listening to this, Bryce, uh, we'd love to have you on the show anyway. The one that Kenneth Branagh directed for HBO, the one that takes place yeah. in Japan. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? It's it's quite lovely. I actually didn't like it. I like. You know what? I I hear you. I thought I would hate it when when I when I went into it like, Meh, and I ended up liking it better than I thought I would. And maybe. Speaking to that Scottish play that we we're talking about before, it has something to do with expectation, because yeah. I had high expectations for the Scottish play and literally none for that. As you like it, so when it was halfway decent, I was like, "Oh, this isn't so bad." The one thing from it that I that I respect and that I enjoy about some of these more modern adaptations is that they don't just place it back in the 1600s or 1700s. <laughs> they they take it and modernize it. Um, there's one that they did and they put it in a local sorority um, like frat house um, that they did a couple of years ago. So my question to you is, do you agree with, or do you like, or do you dislike whenever they modernize locations or time periods? And do you think it hinders or helps the play? Owen and I have talked about this so many times, and we both agree with what it was that your teacher said. Yeah, I had a I had an acting teacher, Joel Friedman, a brilliant, brilliant guy years ago, and he said something that always stuck with me, which is, if you are doing a, a production of a Shakespeare play or, or or any play that is you know not of this era and you impose a concept like taking it out of time period and putting it in modern day or whatever, you better be sure that by doing so, you're adding something to the play that's substantive because by the nature of doing it, you're taking something away. And so it can work. It can work. And there are many examples of uh, quote-unquote concept productions of Shakespeare plays that work beautifully, but mm -hmm. it's tricky. It's tricky. If you people that I've seen so many productions that were just like, why? Like I and honestly, okay, I was in a production of Romeo and Juliet uh, many years ago in which I played Mercutio, in which uh, the director, who shall remain nameless, decided that it should be. It was taking place in a post-apocalyptic world, and that is basically director speak for I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. She had no clue, didn't understand the play. And here's here's the perfect line that sums it up. We finally got our costumes. And I was in the green room 
and I had like a kind of a members only jacket playing oh. Mercurio. It looked ridiculous. And the guy playing Romeo was dressed no better than me. And we were looking at each other in this big dressing room mirror and both of us feeling horrible and looking sheepish. And I, I said to him, my God, dude, I thought this was supposed to be like Mad Max. And he looked at me in my members only jacket and he was like, yeah, it looks a lot more like TJ Maxx. <laughs> you know, but like, but it can work. I was in a production of uh, Comedy of Errors once that was set in a city not unlike New York City. And it worked great because there's all these crazy characters. And we had, you know, some character was, you know, from Chinatown and there was a character from Harlem, you know, it, and there was a businessman from Midtown. Like it, it worked really well because the play is supposed to take place in a big city like that, right? If so the director knows what he or she is doing and has a reason for doing it, then it can work fine. But right. when when if the director he just decides, oh, let's put this play in Addis Ababa because <laughs> I like the way the clothes look there, that's not a reason. And it'll right. Or or we're going to set it in the 40s because we have clothes left over from guys and dolls. That doesn't let's, work. Let's put Othello on the moon because <laughs> that'll be cool. Do you have a, a worst film or worst Shakespeare rendition of anything that you... Oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> she raised her hand. <laughs> right after Owen and I did Twelfth Night together... They were doing Shakespeare in the Park. You know, the public theater in New York was doing Shakespeare in the Park at the Delacorte Theater. And they were doing Twelfth Night. And so I went with uh, our friend Greg, who had played Festi in our production. And Julia Stiles was playing Viola. Okay. There were some other wonderful actors in it. Um, uh, uh, Christopher Lloyd was in it. Um uh, Catherine Misley was in it. Zach Braff was in it. David Harbour from Stranger Things was in it. Like it was wow. a great cast. Yeah. And she was so bad. She was so bad. And the thing was, wait, who was so bad? About it, Julia Stiles. Okay. Just she clarifying. Speak the text. She clearly had no idea what she was saying. She didn't have the vocal power for it. But the thing was. She knew, you could see that she knew how outclassed she was. And it was the most uncomfortable I've ever been at a Shakespeare performance. Wow. Because everybody else was so, was so in it. And she was so outclassed. And I thought I would kill myself. If I was <laughs> well, and I, I hate to say it, but I, I mean, I, I, I've seen so many horrible productions of Shakespeare and, <laughs> and it's tragic. And I think that's what leads to people being afraid of Shakespeare and people thinking that they don't like Shakespeare because it's hard to do Shakespeare well. Uh, and people see shitty productions of it. And there are so many, so many productions of it that, you know, people it's, it's natural that people will, will form that un, unfortunate opinion. But I love when people surprise you. Like, have you guys watched Six Feet Under? It's It's been a minute. Yeah. So remember Lauren Ambrose, the redhead who plays the daughter? My, it's been more than like 10 years since I've seen it. Well, so I had, she was going to be playing Juliet and Romeo and Juliet also at 
the Delacorte. And I didn't, I didn't have high hopes and she was brilliant. Totally blew me out of the water. The best Juliet I've ever seen. Wow. Yeah. Totally unexpected. So I love when people surprise you. Yeah. Like that. Um, so I'm going to ask Owen, um, who's the person that surprised you the most in a Shakespeare play? Wow. Sur- surprised me the most, like in a positive way. Oh, very. Uh, yes. Go yeah, positive. Like Lauren Ambrose surprised in a positive me. way. It surprised me. Um, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, well, you know what? I'm going to, I will give a shout out uh, to a friend of ours. Um, so this isn't like a, like a famous, famous production, but um, an actress that both Lisa Ann and I have worked with, Cynthia Enfield, ah. years, years ago was in a production of Hamlet. And I went to see it because I, I, a number of people were, that I knew were involved with that production. And I had kind of low expectations for the production. Uh, and I didn't know her work terribly well. And I, I, I'll be honest, my, my low expectations were mostly met by the production itself. But Cynthia herself, as Ophelia, was electrifying and tragic and heartbreaking and it was one of the best perform the best ophelia i've ever seen and uh, the reason it was surprising is because it came in the middle of this otherwise dreadful production um so that was that was incredibly surprising and moving for me thank you for sharing um it's always nice to hear people that you don't necessarily expect and um to be honest i i didn't know that judy dench had um had done um, anything related to Shakespeare. I knew that she had done some work. So but I just, yeah. She worked with the Royal Shakespeare Company for she's years. Like, she's like a god of Shakespeare. Yes! Oh my god! Her, I saw her do um, uh, Winter's Tale a few years ago. She was she was amazing. She's amazing. She, you have to find some Judy Dench suing Shakespeare, Trey. Well, you have check, to find some. Check out that Macbeth. Yeah, she's yeah. She's, 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 she's she's Mistress Quickly in the Kenneth Branagh movie of Henry V, but that's a smaller part, uh, and she's great in it. But I would definitely check out that Ian McKellen Macbeth that she's Lady Macbeth in. Oh, anything with Ian McKellen. That's on, on YouTube. Macbeth. You can find that on YouTube. I don't know yep. if I'm supposed to say that, but you can. <laughs> uh, I'm adding it to my notes right now. Um, <laughs> um, now I do want to go back. Um, now, I did hear mention of a story. You not only told us about Russell Crowe, but you also mentioned that you have a very funny uh, Jake Gyllenhaal story. I did um, Love and Other Drugs, and my scene was with Hank Azaria and Jake Gyllenhaal. And I had, well, to start with, I had the swine flu. So I was like, oh, just delirious. But uh, Ed Zwick, Edward Zwick directed that. And we again, we got to set and Hank Azaria was there. And Jake was not there. And we were waiting just a couple of minutes. And you could see that Ed was starting to get a little fussy. And Jake comes running in in sweats with his hair all messed up. And he's like, I'm here, I'm here. Ed Zwick gave us our movements, blah, blah, blah. Sends us all to makeup. And the first thing that happens is Jake Gyllenhaal comes up to me and sticks out his hand and says, hi, I'm Jake. I'm so sorry I was late. Which is amazing anyway. Yeah. But... He is one of the most beautiful men I've ever seen in my life in person. Like I always thought he was like good looking, you know, and films, but he's just stunningly beautiful in person. 
and I have 105 fever. And I'm just like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. (laughs) So you're like delirious. (laughs) He was really sweet. And Hank Azaria grew up in Forest Hills, Queens, New York, where I grew up. And uh, there's a, a series of streets that are in alphabetical order. And I knew that he had grown up in Forest Hills. And we were sitting in the makeup chairs. And I was like, so you grew up in Forest Hills, Queens, right? And he's like, yeah, did you? And I was like, yeah. I was like, can you name all the streets from Austin all the way up through the alphabet? And he just looked at me and said, can you? And I was like, Austin, Burns, Clyde, Dartmouth, Exeter. I mean, I had no filters because I had 105 fevers. <laughs> so beside the podcast, what are, are you guys working on anything now? Um, lots of stuff. Um, I'm actually the artistic director of a theater called the Schoolhouse Theater in North Salem, New York, in Westchester County. Um, we do, oh God, we're doing Zooms all the time. We like to do oh a different God. Zoom matinee every single Saturday at three o'clock uh, and have done for the last 90 weeks, if you can believe it. But we're also getting ready to resume production of live shows. And um, we are, we're looking at doing a new play called Grant and Twain, which is unsurprisingly a, a, a play about Ulysses Grant and Mark Twain that's going to be done this summer and we're looking to reopen the our theater which has been closed and is currently being renovated it's been closed for the last couple of years uh, this fall I'm going to be directing a play called Red which you may have heard of it won the Tony Award about 10 years ago a play about Mark Rothko uh, and that is slated to open in the fall in November so we are okay. busily in pre-production I've been really I've been really lucky to actually have done three stage shows last year, you know, nice. with all of the COVID precautions in place and all that kind of stuff. But my next gig is I'm the dialect coach for a big production of Kinky Boots, which is gonna be really oh. fun. Woohoo! Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That does sound fun. I do have one minor question. Um, you both I can tell have done different accents. You both have this incredible um, speech to you and you enunciate incredibly well. But I can also tell that you've performed in with a variety of different dialects. So my last question to you is going to be, what is your favorite dialect that you've had to speak in? Favorite? <laughs> well, I've, I will tell you that we, we had a theater company in New York in the nineties and we did a production of the London cuckolds that Owen was directing. And I was playing the second female lead and I learned a Welsh dialect for that show, which is hard as balls, but it was really fun and it totally fit the character. Yeah. Uh, there, you know, there are some that are, you know, easier than others. I will say it's easy to say carriage rod governor. Um, uh, <laughs> But, you know, so Cockney or standard British, those are fairly easy. But years, I mean, and, and this is gone for me now. Years and years ago, when I was very young, I played uh, the title character in Master Harold and the Boys uh, in two South separate African. And I had to master the South, the South African accent, which South is African. a very, very tricky dialect to do. Um, you, you, it's very easy to fall in the crack and make it be Australian, which is not the, yeah, Mm, I can see that. Yeah. I worked really hard and you know, this is like mm, 35 
plus years ago. So it would be hard for me to replicate now, but I had a lot of fun once I mastered it. That is awesome. Um, my go-to has been the Minnesotan accent, but it's like <laughs> mix of like Wisconsin, Minnesotan, and then a little bit of Fargo in there. And a little oh, bit of Sarah Palin. Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> Want some pop? <laughs> and some pap. So I'm gonna go down to the store and grab some eggs, put them in a bag, and then go home and cook some lure fish. You want some? Yeah. The I, Pittsburgh I, dialect I, is one of the hardest ones I've ever had to master. I directed a show. Because it makes no sense. I directed a show in Wisconsin a couple of years ago, in which the word "bag" was oh, featured yeah. quite a bit, and everybody. I had to give constant notes because, of course, people were saying "bag." Bag. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, 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 it's bad. Anyway. Yeah, no, I I grew up near Chicago, but I have relatives in Minnesota and I'm in Minnesota now. And then I also lived in the Carolinas. So I've been all over. And one of the growing up in the Midwest, one of the hardest words for me was, and I have to constantly remind myself how to say it properly, but it is bagel because so many people around me say it bagel bagel it's bay gull right it's a dip song right it's like a seagull only by the bay yes exactly that is exactly how it is in my head i spell i yeah i have to see that word to say it correctly and that drives me crazy and i'm the one trying to say pittsburghers do this thing where first of all like for example if you ask if a pittsburgher wants to ask you if you are going downtown to see the Steelers game, right? They won't say, are you going downtown to see the Steelers game? They would say, he's getting downtown to see Steelers net. Wow. What? Yeah. Yeah. What? And they make questions out of statements and statements out of questions. (laughs) (laughs) Now I want to visit there. Come on. Just to hear. Yins need to come on down. Yins. I thought Yins was a Tennessee thing. Yins. Yins is a Pittsburgh Pittsburgh thing. Don Don. Y-I-N-Z-E. Yins. Yins. We got a new one, Trey. Uh, Please don't add any more. I don't need any more. (laughs) I I am I'm up to my eardrops and y'all at the moment and I'm. We used to, I'm, <laughs> we used I to have a production of As You Like It for Pittsburgh Shakespeare in the Park a few years ago, and we had T-shirts made that said As Yins Like It. <laughs> <laughs> we used to have a um an intercom at work so that we could broadcast throughout the store, and we would do different different accents and things like that but we didn't we didn't know to do a yins yes oh, yeah. it's a particular thing yeah we did a lot of them but that wasn't one Lisa <laughs> <laughs> um, Ann Owen um, I I just have to say thank you so much for being on here honestly this I have learned more about Shakespeare in the last two hours than I did my entire 11th grade year <laughs> um and, and it was more to, fun. <laughs> it was so much more fun. Um, and it's something to be said whenever you can say things very openly and honestly about that. So, um, so sincerely, thank you for sharing your expertise. Of course. Oh, sorry. oh, it was a joy. It's been so lovely. Thank you both. Thank you. Uh, 
And I would like to ask, um, would you ever consider being on the podcast again? Of course. Sure, we because we be have honored. to do the grudge match, right? We, got we have to do the tournament. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Only if you ask us. <laughs> Politely or impolitely? <laughs> Either way, honestly, impolitely might be better. That's it would true, be more actually. fun. Yes. Yo, get the is. fuck on our podcast, you <laughs> We'll get us there every time. We'll, we'll ask Yins to be on the exactly. podcast. Nice. <laughs> um, well, with that being said, um, just a couple of things before we wrap up tonight. Um, Owen and uh, Lisa Ann, we, um, we do like to wrap up with a quote of some sort. And in the spirit of Shakespeare... I actually have two. Oh, yeah. um, the first one comes from A Midsummer Night's Dream, and I'm sure that you know it by heart, but I'm still going to say it anyway. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. Um, and then... Fucking from... A right. Mm -hmm. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. And then I will say this from Hamlet. Um, I actually found this one while we were speaking, and because we've talked about Hamlet a lot. Doubt, uh, doubt thou the stars are fire, doubt that the sun doth move, doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. And you can Those find lovely. Hamlet writes yes. that to Ophelia because he likes her. <coughs> I like Yins. Yep. Doesn't end well. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Yins are looking good, man. Right. <laughs> um, as uh, for our Twitch audience, um, if you are tuning in with us for the first time, we do like to raid after a podcast. Um, so please don't go anywhere. We like to show some love to some fellow artists, um, artisans, creators out there. Um, so please stay with us momentarily. Uh, but we've got some very quick notes. As a reminder, uh, spring is here. It is not 60% loaded at this point. It is officially here. So we've got some really amazing things that have joined our online store. We some, do have some really great uh, fine curated things, uh, but I'm not going to talk about them because I'm going to force you to go to our website and take a look at them. Um, and also, if you can hear the cat in the background, please take time to pet your cats. Uh, that's right. That's right. That's this is a PSA. That is my rescue cat, Harry, who has a very loud voice, which is how he saved his life. Oh, yeah. Fortunate. We have nine. Oh, my God. Oh, and I love dog. that. And an axolotl. It's a lot of animals. Oh, cool. <laughs> I love those. Yeah. Uh, we are also now on pretty much every single podcast outlet available. Um, you cannot get away from us. We do live here now. We will be your friends whether you like us to or not. We are coming to Raise Your Fridge. So uh, please have foie gras uh, ready for us. I don't, I don't know. That was a terrible choice. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. I'm gonna mm. opt out of that one. on the off What? Just have a variety of cheeses, and we'll be fine. Yes, we're coming to raid your fridge. I'm gonna back up. We're coming to raid your fridge. So please have an assortment of fancy cheeses ready. Much better. Fancy. Fancy. Uh, listen for free wherever you get acquire, collect, access, pillage, plunder, or download any podcast, or listen to your local bard, um, seeing them on the street corner. For updates, announcements, and info on who our next guests are, please follow us on social media. Um, um, you can find the Bardcast, it's Shakespeare You Dick podcast, on uh, pretty much every possible place you can find a podcast. If you Google it, you will find it, but it's 
you can follow them on social media at the Bardcast you dick. Any uh, final anythings? You can also visit our website if you like at www.thebardcastudick.com. And yeah, we're on pretty much every platform you can imagine. So give us a follow us on Facebook as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, dicks. (laughs) Follow us and shit. (laughs) Yins. Yins asses to our podcast. Um, This is a a request to Cap. Please, please clip that. (laughs) We'll send you guys the link for when um, the episode goes live. Sweet. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Because we will tout it to everybody we know. That would be fun. I'm going to go to Lisa Ann and to Owen. Uh, Your favorite Shakespeare monologue in 30 seconds. And go. Nope. No pressure. Uh, I know you all in a little while. Hold the under tumor of your idleness. Yet herein will I imitate the sun of death from it. The now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by the sun of New York. All the clouds that flowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now our clouds bound up with glorious monuments. Our crews at arms hung up for monuments. Shall I go on or have we reached 30 seconds? This is wonderful. Thank you guys for coming and everybody else have a great night. Good night. Thanks, guys. Thank you.